All right. Uh, welcome back to Wednesday night. Uh, I got a few Wednesday nights left for this series on Ephesians. Um, hopefully, you've been thinking about the questions that you're going to ask uh, for the last week. You can try something new for the last week. So next week, um, we will have some slips of paper available and then a box that um, will be secure, anonymous, no cheating, no changing the questions. It'll be very secure, so you can submit those questions. Um, also, still would love to hear uh, from some folks that did the uh, Lenten booklet. I would actually love some corrective feedback, some things that you didn't like or didn't appreciate um, so that we can make those adjustments. I can make those adjustments moving forward. So tonight we're going to be going through 21 through uh, 33. Next week we'll go 6, 1 through, 10, 6, 1 through 9, and then uh, the 4th the we will go uh, through the rest of the book of Ephesians. We'll celebrate David's favorite day of the year along with all the other nerds, I mean, Star Wars fans. All right, let's uh, open with a word of prayer, and then let's get into uh, the topic at hand. Our Lord God, we come to you this evening, and we come with uh, anticipation uh, of what it is that you're going to do in and through uh, this group, this body tonight, and in and through your word and the movement of your spirit, I just ask that you would you be present and gracious to us, that we would be open to you and uh, the revelation of your spirit in this body and in our lives as we seek to grow and understand you more and to live into this calling of what it means to be a disciple of yours. So be with us tonight, be with our discussion, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in verse 21. The reason why we're starting in verse 21 is because that is where the sentence really starts. Um, as we talked about last week a little bit, um, different translators have dissected this section of text um, for their own purposes. It's true. Um, you can't start a new section with a Sentence that doesn't have a verb. <laughs> Sentences need verbs, so we got to go back. 21 really um, needs to be with 22 because that's where the verb is at. Uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So let's just say this in reverse. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So sometimes it's helpful to read uh, passages in a different order, understanding where the emphasis might be. Scott McKnight has a great commentary called Reading Romans Backwards and makes this case that in order to understand the letter to the Roman church, we have to read it in reverse uh, to see what Paul is doing. One thing I want to keep us aware of as we approach this text, and I've been thinking about it a lot, uh, we, we just so often refer to this as the book of Ephesians. And that can create some uh, interpretive challenges for us because we miss out on the fact that this is a letter. So it's more helpful in our brains to say this is the letter to the Ephesians than the book to the Ephesians, or the book of Ephesians, because then we can understand that Paul is writing into a particular context to a particular group of people, and it is his heart being written to a group. It is not some theological dissertation um, as we would think of it today. This is a letter being written by uh, the individual who planted this church, encouraging and spurring them on. Also, uh, what I want us to be aware of and acknowledge just out of the gate is when we come to texts like this, uh, it can seem exclusionary to individuals who don't have, say, a spouse, a husband or a wife, and it can seem as though it doesn't apply to us, or we can overemphasize the importance of being married and say, well, if you're not married, then you really don't have a voice in understanding this part of the text, which, was, which is extremely inappropriate, um, and it's not at all what Paul is trying to do. As David pointed out at lunch, um, Paul himself says it is better to not be married. <laughs> so what do we do with that? Um, so that's one thing that we need to acknowledge is uh, for those who are not married, this is not to say that the best place to be and is to be married in the church. We're not elevating one status over another because unfortunately for many uh, single individuals, that can be the sense within the body is like, well, if you're not married, then what's wrong with you? That's, again... Not healthy, and it's not helpful, and it certainly doesn't build unity. So, one thing that we need to do is take a step back and do some historical understanding uh, of this conversation. And I know for, for some of us, we certainly don't like to step back historically, and we don't, we don't uh, like to have these conversations because we're like, well, let's just talk about the present. And as I was thinking about this today, I was thinking about when we go to the doctor— when we go to a physician, they want family history. 
They want to know about our parents and histories of diseases in our family and heart conditions and all of these things. And then they want to know uh, our own experience and things we've done in our past that might get us to today where we have certain conditions or problems. And so we don't say to the doctor, yeah, yeah, don't worry about my past. Let's just talk about my present because that would be unhelpful because our past including our DNA past, has ramifications on our present and on who we are today. So as we look at a passage like this, we have to look and acknowledge that our past and our family heritage, being the evangelical tradition that we find ourselves in and the American church, has some things to inform us about this passage. For one thing, we, we acknowledge that Culture has infected the church in more ways than we can ever acknowledge, which is, seems like circular reasoning, but um, the culture in which we find ourselves has infiltrated and infected how we do life and how we do this thing called church, whether we like it or not. And so often is the case that we allow culture wars to get our attention and to drive how we interpret Scripture and how we make decisions about how we live because we are convinced that if we don't go to war on this cultural thing, then we are going to lose ground and somehow the health and vitality of the church is going to be compromised as if God needs us to go to war on his behalf in particular in a cultural context. And I was at book club last night talking about this fascinating book called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And one of the main things is we get so entrenched in these culture wars that we actually become heretical in our commitment to Scripture because we are convinced that if we don't fight this battle and we lose this culture war, then we lose. Likewise, we have this challenge where um, when the pendulum swings a particular way on a particular subject, we do what you never should do on uh, an icy road. We overcorrect in an effort to keep ourselves on the road. And as South Dakota did so terribly a few years ago um, in their campaign about winter driving, we just make a mess of it. So within this pendulum swing from one extreme to the other, we acknowledge that the reality of the truth is somewhere within the middle. So within all of that <laughs> front running, we see this verse of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is where we start. So we acknowledge that this position of mutual submission across all areas and all relationships of the body of Christ is the overarching call in which we are to live our lives. Now Paul becomes granular in the next three kind of micro-sections in dealing with specific examples of how that looks and why that's important. We do a giant disservice 
when we don't read 21 with 22. As I mentioned, the verb for 22 is in 21. So, that's also where we're at. What does it mean to submit? And Brent and Ben and I were having a hilarious conversation last night about what it means to submit. And I think I've told this story before. I grew up with two older brothers, and there was always this competition of wrestling and trying to force the other one into submission. So we had this long, somewhat protracted, very intellectual conversation about the best submission moves in the WWF. Was it the figure four? Was it the chin lock? Was it the grab the legs and pull them up? The jury's still out. When we think about submission, we so often think about a use of force to inflict on another person in order to get them to bend to our will. So when we think about submit, we think about a specific use of force in an effort to get someone to do something we want to do or to get them to not do something. I mean, if you ever watch UFC, they're trying to submit the other guy out, which you're like, wait, you watch UFC? Sometimes. Trying to connect with the kids, you know? That's not what Paul is talking about. When we, ha- when we talk about these terms, we have to understand that, again, the culture has infected our understanding of language, and language changes over time. And how we use language changes over time. And these meanings of words tend to shift and slide over time. And so for Paul, when he talks about this word submission, it's the intentional act of giving up one's position, power, or authority, desires, in favor of someone else in order to bring worship and embody reverence for Christ. Could you say that again? If I can remember it. Submission is giving, intentionally giving up one's own power, position, or authority, desires for someone else's position or power or authority or desires in order to worship God and glorify him by showing reverence to Christ. So when we talk about this word submission... It's not a forceful act. It's an intentional decision that one makes to place oneself under another person. So it's not that I am forced to make this decision. I intentionally make this decision. You know, it's like if you're ever on the highway and they're going to go down to one lane and You know that one person or seven of them? That are doing it correctly? You don't merge until the merge. You don't merge a quarter of a mile back. That's not how it's designed. 
But then there's always one person that goes flying by and they're like, oh, let me get in. And you're like, oh, I'm not going to let you get in. Then your spouse is like, let them get in. The name of my company is on the side of my truck. (laughs) Okay, fair. That's partly why I have my sticker on the back of my truck. So if anyone's like, oh, I know who that guy is. You don't need a phone number. You just show up and say, you're a jerk. Um, It's like, no, here, you go ahead. You go ahead. What I have is not uh, of utmost importance. It's not about power or position or authority attaining or grabbing. And if you remember back last year, Joel came and he talked uh, when we were in First and Second Peter about this same type of concept. And so when we think about this, especially in a Trinitarian concept, what, what gets out of whack, and it is a legitimate heresy, is that that Christ was forced to submit to God and somehow is less than God because he came and he died on the cross. And, and that is not true, that God the Father is somehow over Jesus Christ within the Trinity and that Christ is subjugated under God the Father. Not, not the case. That's actually a heresy. So, let's, we could get into that, but we're not going to get into that completely tonight. So this idea of submitting is placing oneself, giving up one's desires in favor of the other. Again, as we've been talking throughout the book, this letter to the Ephesians, this is all within the context of all these things that we've been talking about. So again, going back to chapter 4, in this, this posture of humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, as we go into this, this is not a new concept. But for some reason, um, and we'll get into that in a little bit, we have totally screwed this whole thing up. And so we've tainted what this word uh, actually means. So, this, um, does that ever happen when you're watching at home? Or just when you're in person? Okay, that's fine. One of, the best, one of the best instances, and, and I've never had a chance to bring it up, but since you've allowed me to, was when somebody's sitting right here, uh, their phone started going off, and I could recognize the voice that was speaking because it was the Bible app on their phone that was reading the text. <laughs> it's like, okay. So, Beth, uh, Beth Allison Barr in the Baking, Making of Biblical Womanhood, she writes this. She says, uh, the New Testament household co- codes tell a story of how the early church was trying to live within a non-Christian and increasingly hostile world. They needed to fit in, but they also needed to uphold the gospel of Christ. They had to, had to uphold the frame of Roman patriarchy as much as they could, but they also had to uphold the worth and dignity of each human being made in the image of God. Paul gave them the blueprints to remix Roman patriarchy. Instead of being directed toward men as the primary authority, the Christian household codes include everyone in the conversation. Instead of justifying male authority on account of female inferiority, 
The Christian household codes affirm women as having equal worth to men. Instead of focusing on wifely submission, everyone was doing that, the Christian household codes demand that the husband do exactly the opposite, the opposite of what Roman law allowed, which is sacrificing his life for his wife instead of experiencing power over her life. This, writes Pepiet, is the Christian revolution. This is what makes Christians different from the world around us. Could we have gotten Paul exactly backward? What if his focus was never male headship and female submission? What if his vision was bigger than that? What if instead of replicating an ancient gender hierarchy, Paul was showing us how the Christian gospel sets even the Roman household free? So when we look at this, one of the key themes that we've been talking about within this letter to the Ephesians is the world lives like this and followers of Christ live like this. So it is this stark contrast to how the world functions, how the Roman environment, culture works, and how those who are in the kingdom of God live their lives. And so when we keep that as the framework, when we read this, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or blemish or any such or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So when Paul writes these words to the Ephesians, he is making a complete shift in how the world in which these Ephesian Christians lived. Because we know to be in a Roman household as a female, as a child, as a servant, which is where we're going next, next week, was to be less than human, to be subhuman, to be property, to be disposed of. And so when Paul writes this section, he is making such a radical call on the households of God to live in a dramatically different way than the Roman church or the Roman uh, world. And so he sets up this mutuality and he makes the claim that the, the woman's body is equivalent to the man's body. That the value of a female is equivalent to the value of a male. And so he makes this call to husbands to treat their wives as if they would treat their own body. And we can't miss that. And we cannot miss that. He's elevating the care for the female within this society to a level that they had never experienced before. 
And so when people say Paul is a misogynistic, patriarchal, fill-in-the-blank, that's not really the case. That's an interpretation of Paul from a very narrow window that is inappropriate and doesn't fully understand what Paul is trying to do. Because what Paul is trying to do is, is get the mutuality in the family relationship. He's going from the global church or the Ephesian church, everyone interacting together, to these granular looks into how these lives are going to be experienced. As we talked about last week, when we're emanating fragrance of who God is in the kingdom of God, what would be a better fragrance? You have your neighbors over in the Roman world who are pagans, and they see how you and your spouse interact, how you treat your children, and they're kind of like, well, that's different. But far too often, we just stop at 24 and we don't fully read into the rest of the passage. We become so wound up in the cultural world that we stop at 24 because, well, it's beneficial. What submission is not is subjugation. Submission is not subjugation. Submission is not possession. Submission is not uh, enslavement. Because again, for the Romans, for those living in Ephesus, to be a spouse, to be a wife, would be the property of a husband. To be a child would be the property of parents or a father. To be a slave would be the property of a master. And Paul is saying that is not the case in the kingdom of God. Which is, which is such a liberating thing for us to embrace and embody. But again, when, when we believe that we need to fight the culture war, and we see in the 1950s and you know, in the rise of the feminist movement, the church begins to react out of fear and scarcity. Well, what's going to happen? You know, what's going to happen if our life doesn't reflect leave it to beaver? <laughs> you know, in the 1920s, when, when women are given a chance to vote, I mean, let's just take a pause and acknowledge 100 years ago, women were subhuman beings within our context. In 1973, a woman was not permitted to get a bank loan without the signature of a male. I mean, could we just take a moment and think about that is how the world functions. And Paul, 2,000 years ago, is completely blowing this thing up and saying, those who are in the kingdom of God, we function completely differently than how the world functions. And we are all the same. And we all have the same value. And so this call for 
a man who chooses to marry a woman, the standard of this commitment. And we just celebrated Easter, right? To love my wife as Christ loves the church is to crucify myself and my desires for her. To love my wife as Christ loves the church is to serve her in a completely different capacity than is humanly imaginable. Because that is the image that Paul is using, this image of Christ and how Christ has chosen to love the church. And it begs the question, is Paul talking about this imagery of husbands and wives because of the, the reality of husband and wife relationships and he's trying to unlock the mystery that is the, the church? That's what he says in verse 32. This mystery is, the, is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Could it be that, that Paul isn't even talking specifically just about husbands and wives, but he's using husbands and wives as a way for us to have a tangible, visible experience of how the church functions within God's kingdom? And all the guys are like, okay, man, enough. Let's talk about the women. (laughs) The thing about all of this is our submission to each other is not about us. Our submission to each other is not about the other person. Our submission to each other is out of reverence and worship for God. And I know we can make this into uh, a quid pro quo. Well, I'll do this if you do this. And if you're not going to do that, then I'm not going to do this. That's not how Paul is imagining this. Christ doesn't go to the cross and die and say, well, since you're going to follow me, then I'll go to the cross. He goes to the cross and is crucified first before we do anything. So he says, he actually says in the Greek, wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the The use of the verb submit is not, it's a continuation that's implied from the previous use of the verb. And I know it seems like such a small thing. It seems like such a small thing. But if it's not there, the sentence doesn't make much sense. And so we add it in there so that we can cut off 21 and we don't have to talk about that. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It doesn't say, wives, submit to your own husbands, period. 
he's making the case that the submission that takes place between a wife and her husband is an act of worship to God. So the place of submission is an intentional decision to place oneself under as an act of worship to God. It's not a forceful, it's not a wives be obedient to your husbands. It's a placing oneself under as an act of worship to God. Now, we would do a giant disservice if we did not acknowledge all the ways that this has gone completely wrong. I mean, completely wrong. Because we take this, or we have taken this, and the we is a very large we, as I talked about before within our history. And individuals who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ have taken this section of text and have used it to abuse, to denigrate, and to ruin women's lives. We've said you cannot divorce your spouse even if they're abusing you. You must do whatever your husband tells you to do. You must be willing to do and be whatever your husband wants you to be because Paul says right here that you're to submit to your husband. And that, that is antichrist. That is antichrist. We tried to get our small group to read this book, The Great Sex Rescue. Um, it worked in the sense that everyone read it. <laughs> no one wanted to talk about it. <laughs> and I was telling David about it. I was listening to it, uh, driving home from, from the cities, and I was just becoming furious. I was so angry, and I was crying and yelling all by myself in the car about how men have used and abused this text to get what they want at the degradation of women. And that is not what Paul is trying to say. Not in the least. Not even close. To love one's wife as Christ loves the church is to not require things of your spouse. The challenging part is Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your own husbands if they submit to, to Christ. <laughs> Paul doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands if they are being obedient to the Lord. That's where it gets really, really, really challenging. And that's where we wrestle with these questions of what are we to do? Because it's clear we are to submit to one another. And then in particular relationships, wives are to submit to their husbands out of reverence to the Lord. And then he goes on to say, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its savior. 
And he reiterates it by saying, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And this, this word for head immediately makes me think of my big fat Greek wedding. And I, I think the crowd I had at lunch wasn't really into that type of movie. Any, anyone know the, the, the line I'm thinking of? All the women are like, oh yeah, the man is the head and the wife is the neck. That's not exactly what Paul is saying. Um, not exactly what Paul is saying. And there is some interesting conversation around what exactly is Paul doing in using and this talking about this head. And, you know, certainly the head is the place of direction. There is a small contingent of uh, commentators that talk about this idea of headship is idea of protector and provider. But again, Paul is calling us in these relationships to submit to one another. Not to be somehow less of a human being, not to be somehow uh, ordered or, or dictated around in our relationships, but to place ourselves under another individual in these intimate relationships. And why is that? Well, if we jump ahead, in verse 31, he quotes out of Genesis, and he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So we've been talking about the unity of the body, and then he uses this marriage analogy, and he says that, you notice the man leaves his family and is united to one flesh with his spouse, making this new family. And so to be one flesh is to be so united together that how I treat myself is how I treat my spouse. And acknowledging that my spouse wouldn't want to do something to injure me because my spouse and I share the same body. And so often we, our modern conception of marriage is so not this. <laughs> I mean, you know, people are like, I would never want this at my wedding. Yeah, because it's a standard of marriage that, woo, is hard. I mean, it's hard. It's beyond hard. So in this submission, again, it's not a tyrannical situation. It's a unity of two bodies into one body. And oh, by the way, I'm talking about the church. To which, again, I'm like, well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about marriage or are we talking about the church? And I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. Because when we talk about a marriage relationship, I love talking to premarital couples. Often they're like, so do you want us to get married? 
I wasn't that hard, was I? Okay. Marriage is the hardest thing we'll ever do. It's the joining together of of two individuals into one flesh, into this challenging situation. And I'll never forget Nikki's aunt and uncle. They said, one day you're going to wake up and you're going to look across the, the table from at your spouse and you're going to say, why did I ever marry this person? <laughs> and then if we look at the body of Christ, we find ourselves saying, what are you even doing here? <laughs> How can we, there's no one sitting over there for you at home, not singling anyone out, how can we be united in this body when we don't have anything in common? And this mystery, again, is something that Paul wants to bring us back to. In the same way, marriage is this grand mystery. How is it that two individuals come together in this place where they relinquish their own desires to benefit the other person? In this mutuality of of love and care. Because to be a follower of Christ is to race to the bottom. Christ comes and he offers us not power over but power under. Power that resides from a place of the bottom. You know, when you think about it, when Christ kneels down to wash his disciples' feet, when he gets in the dirt with all of these people, if we have a posture like Christ where we are on our knees in the relationships that we have, it's really hard to fight from your knees. It's really hard to exercise power and authority over someone else if we are on our knees. And Paul's like, you know it every day. (laughs) Especially if they're in Then he says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And again, so often we we dissect these and we say uh, the woman is to love and the man is to respect, or the woman, the man is to love and the woman is to respect. But why isn't it both? To love and respect To say a different way is to submit to one another. To express agape love, which Paul is saying, towards our spouse, is to relinquish all of our own desires and wishes and power and authority. And it's not that we become subhuman. It's not that as we join together in marriage, our personality and ourselves dissolve and blend into this amalgamation of two people. Two people becoming one person. It's that we, in this mystery, we become ourselves and together united so that 
as this oneness, we can live out this calling that God has called us to. And so this love for wife and this respect for husband is also love for husband and respect for wife. It's mutuality that exists within the relationship. But so often, again, we get it wrong. Well, I don't, I don't need to express love to you because you aren't showing me respect. Well, why would I show you respect when you don't show me love? And so we become worldly again by entrenching ourselves in our own desires, in our own wants, in our own things, and we step away from living into this call that Christ has placed on our lives, and, and we participate in idol worship. We worship ourselves in our relationships when we say, I'm unwilling to do X until you do Y. We say that I'm the most important person in this relationship, and until my needs are being met, don't even ask. That is a worldly position. That is not the picture that Paul is giving us in this marriage relationship of those who are kingdom people. And again, we're not lifting this out of this letter. This sits and resides within all of these other things that we've been talking about. As we started last week, what does it mean to be an imitator of God? Well, let's get granular. What does it mean to imitate God in my relationship with my spouse? Well, it looks like this. Peterson talks about this section in this book, which, again, if you haven't gotten this book, it's his friendly commentary on uh, Ephesians. He says, Be subject to one another, in quotes, Maturity is not analogous to a bodybuilding regimen in which we lift weights, CrossFit, to build, he didn't say that, I added that, to build our muscles to the max and then periodically stand before a mirror, not CrossFit, to examine our progress. Maturity is not a solitary state, it is relational. Maturity does not come about by making the most of ourselves by ourselves, it is making the most of personal relationships. We do not do that by becoming stronger than the other, overpowering him or her, dominating either emotionally or physically. We don't impose ourselves. We enter into another person's life, sharing both weakness and strength. We enter the life of another, but we don't force the entrance. Mutuality is always involved in be subject or in submitting to one another. All right, you can go to your groups.